Hello and welcome to another King of the Ride podcast. I hope your 2021 had just the right finishing touches on it so you can look back proudly at the year that was. And if not, then let's bid farewell to the year that wasn't. And cheers to you. Cheers to an excellent 2022. Our guest today, he's had a noteworthy 2021 as he wrapped up what I'm going to call his incredible cycling career. One of the very best cyclists has ever produced. He has won the USA Pro Cycling Challenge, the Amgen Tour of California. He has stage wins at the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Swiss, the Volta Catalunya. He has also finished second twice overall at the Criterium de Dauphiné, twice fifth overall at the Tour de France. Yeah, I would say his career has been remarkable. My friend TJ Van Garderen is a guest on today's podcast. Now, I've got a few years on TJ. I am his his elder, but I've been nothing but impressed with him throughout our time together. We overlapped a little bit in Belgium at the U.S. national team where I was in the U23 squad. He was a junior. That was back in 2005. A few years later, we became friends living together in Boulder, Colorado. Fast forward a few more years, we lived together in Lucca, Italy. We both shared the characteristic of Zipping location to location for the best training, the best weather, the best location to to be riding a bike and training for our careers. So I've seen him here and there and everywhere, all over the world. Now, don't worry, this won't purely be a cycling podcast as we caught up on a whole lot of stuff after a whole long time apart. We're going to talk American sports, geography, food, wine, barata, COVID, parenthood, the past, present, and future in his life and beyond. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I had a great time catching up with TJ, and maybe better yet, I hope you have a great 2022. Happy New Year, my friends. Ladies and gentlemen, TJ Van Garderen. minute or two um yeah all right tell me something are the new england patriots more likable or less likable without tom brady Ooh, good question oh man you're starting right away with like you're going for the jugular there uh-huh. yeah i i go big right I mean, from the get-go i gotta say Flips uh, you flip that question around. Tom Brady is absolutely more likable without the New England Patriots. Oh, curious. Do you think he'd still be as likable if he didn't win his first Super Bowl that he had away from the New England Patriots? We're going on a wicked well, detour here. No, I like this. I mean, I mean, winning, obviously, you know, it's, it's going to make people like, I know, I think like for the longest time for like, you know, for like 20 years or so, people thought that Tom, he was like a, a cog in the machine. He was a product of Bill Belichick. And then it was also like this big debate who has, you know, more credit, Tom or Bill. Mm-hmm. But now he was able to branch out on his own. Um People are like, oh, hey, Tom. And plus, he's gotten like so much more active on social media. Like, I actually follow him now, and he, some of his <laughs> stuff's pretty funny. He's entertaining, especially teamed up with Gronk. I mean, that's a that's a mean one too. Oh yeah, that yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the whole like 
throwing the Lombardi trophy and everything. It's like, okay, you, you would never see that on the Patriots. On the Patriots, everyone's just sort of robotic and uh, methodical. Like, you, you, feel, you feel his personality coming out now. Mm-hmm. So that's the flip side of your question. Um, right now, are the Patriots more likable without Tom? Yeah. And let I me mean, interject. You can't argue with stuff. Like you, you are a you are a Denver Broncos fan, so this is like that's that's a that's a tough question to answer in the first place. It is, it is. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Like the Broncos have gotten the better of the Patriots on a few occasions, especially in those Peyton years. Um, <laughs> but they have been uh, the cause of a lot of my ire in the past. So I, I'm just gonna still say that I, I don't like the Patriots. I'm just gonna. That's just me. All right. Still fair. fair. Uh, and, and, you know, this question is spurred because the other day was – it was Monday Night Football. The Patriots were on. You and I were texting. That's – hence the, the Red Sox hat. What's, what's, your, what's your general take on U.S. sports? Do you follow more than football? Do you follow the, the big four, as it were, big four of major sports? Well, I'm definitely a big basketball fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, my Nuggets, uh, they've been they, – they've been good and they're showing promise, but injuries have just kind of, like, been catching up with them. We're missing Jamal Murray. Michael Porter Jr. is out. You know, we still got Nikola Jokic, who's balling, but, you know, I just uh, – <laughs> it's – you know, ever since they made that conference finals in the in the bubble, like, you know, we were thinking, like, okay, it's just a matter of time, but now – now they're just, I don't know. Hopefully we can come back healthy and like really, really show something. It's still early. So, yeah, you know, um, I don't know. Baseball, I can't get into hockey. Uh, hockey's more of a Boston thing. <laughs> we got cold weather here. We got Even though the abs, the abs are actually pretty good right now. I guess yeah. the abs are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, switching gears to perhaps a more, anticipated topic we can talk we can talk about bikes um albeit many many months past due this is the first time speaking face to face albeit other side of the country wishing you a congratulations on a very successful career um thank you what are you what are you most enjoying in retirement and of of course now we're what six months in so it's not like it just happened yesterday out of boy for those uh, for those of you who didn't who are only listening to the audio portion, I just held up a glass of, of beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very good, very uh, good. This is Figaro Mountain Brewing beer. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to just to be clear, and as you probably know, Figaro Mountain that was my mountain. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't. I wish I had had Strava throughout my whole career, but uh, Figaro Mountain. I, I guarantee you nobody has ridden and will ever ride that mountain as many times as I have. That's why my Strava record might be broken that I'll be okay with, but I, I, the local legend thing, if I, man, if I had had that thing, even like dating back to Oh seven, when I, I was invited to a discovery channel training camp, <laughs> um, that was held in Solvang. I started riding that mountain back then. And then like from 2010 on every winter, I went out there and rode that thing like dozens and dozens of times. So yeah, surely I'm like, I'm probably close to a thousand times I've ridden that. 
Anyways, I'm going off on a really, really weird tangent. Um, I'm not going to just say that beer is the best part of retirement. <laughs> Although it's a big, it's a big, it's a big plus. It's sizable. Yeah, it's important. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, honestly, it's, I guess it's just, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, it's like just everything is just, it's just like this gigantic weight off of your shoulders. Like, uh, like you don't have to wake up and, and ride even though you don't want to just because you have to. Now it's like, I get to go out and ride and I, and I get to stop when I want to stop and I get to basically just, you know, not beat myself up. Like, um, like if you have a burger or, and you want to watch some football and have some chips and salsa, like you, not that I wouldn't do that before, but I'd beat myself up about it. And now I do it and I'm like, yeah, who the hell cares? Yeah. Uh, accurate. I mean, the, the follow-up question I had to that is what are you enjoying most in retirement referring to eating and drinking? So I'm glad that your answers do hinge around, hinge around that because I think I imagine you ask most mm-hmm. cyclists, that's going to be their, their response. It's like, it's giving up the, that monkish lifestyle of, of austerity and starving yourself. I mean, eating and drinking are so enjoyable. So it's such a shame to not have those things. Um, for sure. But at the same time, it's like, you, you know how like you, you do a hard ride and when you're a racer, you, you feel so hungry, but you just don't get to satiate that hunger. If you're just kind of on the couch and you're just being lazy and you're like a burger doesn't taste as good, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I still like to go out there and like, uh, and, and kind of just kind of work a bit. Like I still ride, but I kind of have this like three hour limit. Like I just, I have a hard time going over three hours. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but it's like, I'll go out there and I'll work for it. But then I'm like, Hey, I get to satiate that appetite. Yeah. 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 No, that's the, the three hour window is a very, it's, it's manageable. Uh, you're not bidding farewell to your family the whole day. You're, you're, you're getting a wicked good workout. You can earn that burger and the chips and the salsa. I dig that. Um, and, and, scratching the itch of my own curiosity because I know Figaro Mountain very well. Do you think, do you think you've done it clockwise and counterclockwise equal number of times? Or are you favoring one side or the other? No, the happy Canyon side, I've definitely done much more. Probably I would go, I would say twice as much as the Los Olivos side. Yep. 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 Uh, Just because the Los Olivos side, it has, it's steeper. It has steeper pitches, but you can't get more than like a five minute section without it going down. So just whenever I was doing my workouts or my efforts, it was too hard to, to fit it into those sections. Uh-huh. Whereas, you know, the happy Canyon side, you had that 15 minute section, it would kind of go down on, on the dirt uh-huh. and then you'd have a, a half an hour section. Uh-huh. Um, so you could just fit everything in and it was in a nice, neat little package. Which I've, I've written it often enough that I know every gosh darn square inch, but it's, I've also not written it enough that I'm still surprised every time. Like when you just said that, that second half hour section, which you're doing in a half hour, that means I'm doing it in 40 minutes. Uh, that thing just goes and goes and goes. You're like, why am I not there yet? 
and, and you can count all mm -hmm. those little, you can see the corners of the switchbacks. Anyway, folks, if you've never ridden Figaro Mountain, make, make it a point because this is iconic and one of the best climbs in, in America. Gosh, darn it. Um, all right. And probably the, the, the reason that I moved to Los Olivos um, uh -huh. and spent so much time, if it wasn't for that particular mountain, I would have had nothing to do with the San Ynez Valley. Yeah. Granted, they have good wine. They have good wine and nice people. And, and you know, it's a, it's a cool <laughs> place to be. But if you subtract Mount Figueroa from that equation, uh -huh. I wouldn't have been there. Well, staying perfectly off topic... There are two very critical things that I don't know if you know that you've introduced me to. You probably know that you've introduced one of them to me. And that's Sarloos and Sons. Uh, I'm drinking that right now. Huh. Very much appreciated. A gift at your very wedding. Nice. And and so as your folks, as you're making your way to the San Ynez Valley, make sure you go to Los Livos and visit the presumably only wine and cupcake shop in America <laughs> or perhaps in the world. And the other one you introduced me to is Barada. Burrata. Yeah. I remember my first really? burrata experience. We were living in we were living in Luca at the time and we went out to dinner and I forget who was there, a handful of cyclists, and and you sort of nonchalantly but emphasize that burrata is coming up next and it's not something to be missed. Like make sure you try it. And it was it was ethereal. It's like burrata is not mozzarella. There's something exceptional about that where after a nice hard flogging on the bike, you 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 enjoy your burrata all that much more. So appreciated both of those things. Hey, well, hey, I'm uh, I'm here to educate. <laughs> Cheers to that. Okay, okay, let's let's keep this mildly business related. Now, <sighs> retirement is not an easy decision. Um, I retired at the age of 32. You are 32, 33. How old are you, TJ? I'm 33, and. Well, okay, then by my math, you retired at 32 and have turned 33 since then. You feel free no, not no, to no. correct that. I, no, I was I was 33. I turned, well, I guess I was turned 33 in August. So I guess if you want to be really technical about it, my last race was Nationals. So I would have been very close to 33. So, uh, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. I guess okay, so, so more to the point. When... When does the, the option to retire, when does the idea of retirement enter your mind? Ooh, um, well, so I've, I've been asked this question quite a bit and I keep changing my answer like every single time. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> because you know, COVID was a, was a tough year and it was one of those times where like we had this time off. And then when I came back, I just wasn't, things weren't clicking, but if I'm really honest with myself, it happened before that. Um, so 2019 was the year I joined EF and I just kind of had this, you know, things were kind of, I was still good, but I was struggling a little bit and things weren't clicking for me the way they were in the past. And I thought like, okay, this move to EF, it's going to be like a renaissance. And I, I, got, I got off to a slow start, but then things started to click and things started to move. And then I crashed out of the tour and I was like, all right, brush it off. Don't worry about it. Went to the Vuelta and crashed out of the Vuelta. And after that, I was like, it, it, things just, 
it was hard for me to get going again. Like I, I almost wanted to just say, you know, forget this at that point. But um, I was like, okay, I'm going to come back in 2020. You know, I, I was strong. I trained well, but I was never really like up at the front. I was more kind of a, just a team helper. And then, and then the pandemic hit and we got this time off and almost that time off. I enjoyed it so much. Like it, it, it sounds crazy. Like, cause I would never, I would never say that, you know, COVID was a good thing. I would, I would never say that. Like, um, I understand like the severity and like the seriousness of it. But, uh, for me, I was, I was really enjoying the time at home with my kids and with Jessica and, uh, and I was enjoying just riding the bike. I wasn't following any training plan. Um, cause I didn't know what I was training for. I didn't know if the racing was going to come back. So I just started exploring some gravel roads. I actually rode some, some roads around San Inez Valley that I had never ridden before in my life. Like there was a, there's this gravel section of road that goes like up refugio that cuts across all the way to 154 on this gnarly, gnarly gravel section that mm -hmm. should never be done on a road bike with slick tires, but I did it on a road bike with slick <laughs> tires. I have no idea how I didn't puncture and like, I, I like really, I should still be up there, you know, like, because there's no cell service. I, I would have been, I would have been completely screwed <laughs> if, if anything had happened. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I know exactly um, where you're talking about. I've been up there and and I've been to the the juncture where it goes from let's call it rideable gravel to don't go on there you know, or don't go beyond here. So you went yeah. beyond there, which is fantastic. I, I went beyond there. Yeah. I, I I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. It's this like ten mile section of like I wouldn't even take like a normal SUV on there. You would need a Jeep to drive this thing, um, or, or more like a Hummer. Yeah, 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 <laughs> but. Yeah. But yeah, I rode that and like I, I did all this gravel road, you know, okay, on Figaro, we were just talking about Figaro. So you have the normal section of dirt and then you go up and you come to this intersection where normally you take a left to, to go to the top. Yeah. Or you can go straight and you can go down to like Davy Brown Campground. It's kind of a rough road, but I've been down there plenty of times. It's not, it's not anything like crazy special. Okay. You have to go down and come back up. Or you can go right and go on this like super crazy dirt road that takes you like to this other ridge. And then you can drop down all the way to Lake Kachuma. Holy cow. Huh? And yeah, like on, during this time, I was like, you know what? You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go right. <laughs> like I've never <laughs> been right before in my life. Uh -huh. If not I'm now, never. <laughs> it's amazing, man. The views there are amazing. Yeah. And I was having so much fun. And then once the race program actually came back, I was, it was almost like a, Oh God, I'm going to have to go back out there. Yeah. And, uh, and like, I just didn't know if I, if it was something I wanted to do, like I had just had such a huge disappointment from the year before crashing out of these races after I had like done all the, the proper preparation and starving myself and going to altitude and, being on a volcano and doing all of that, I was just like, I don't know if I want to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I made it through that year and I was even thinking like, okay, I'm going to, I still want to give this a try. But then it was, it was like I halfway through the Giro of this year, I was like, I, I I'm kidding myself. Like I, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. 
that was when you say zero this year, 2021. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then, I mean, that's, that's the, the sentimental heartfelt question. How hard, how logistically hard is it to, to, to retire mid year? Or is it as simple as your heart's not in it? Your legs aren't going to be in it. I'm going to wrap up after nationals. Well, the fact that I, I was interested in being a director kind of made it a bit easier Mm -hmm. because I said, Hey, I said to the team, like, Hey, look, I'm really interested in directing because I do think that I have a lot of during the past couple of years, I felt like I was completely ineffective in races. Like I was not really, I went from being like a really good climber to thinking like, okay, maybe I can be a little bit less good, but I can still be good enough to help out guys like Hugh or guys like, you know, Danny Martinez or Rigo, but I couldn't even really climb with the best 30 guys anymore. Um, so I was like, well, I'm not like a big classics powerhouse guy where I can just like post up in the wind and I can't really climb. Where am I effective? The only place I found that I was effective was in the team meeting on the bus. I was able to kind of give advice or give my opinion or give my experience. And, and I was like, you know what? I think I, I think I have more to give in this aspect so I don't want to race anymore, but I want to be a director and I still want to be involved. Um, and they're like, well, perfect. Well, where do you want to, like, they gave me the option, like, well, where do you want to stop? And I was like, well, how about I do nationals? And then maybe I can shadow some of the directors in the Vuelta. And then I like USA cycling gave me the opportunity to direct at worlds. And so I was able to gain experience and kind of still be working for the team. Um, so, so it all, it was all fairly easy in that regard. I think had I said like, I want to, I want to be done and just disappear and, and have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Maybe that would have been a little bit logistically, they might've said like, well, we're, we're going to need you to fill some roster spots here. Yeah. Yeah. But they were, they were really cool with it. And, um, and the directors really brought me on and made me, you know, a part of the group and are, were super supportive. That's, that's perfect. I mean, yeah, to be able to write that kind of exit right, but still maintain the connections are, are it's rare, you know, that that's a really cool opportunity. Um, so, so, you know, dozen years in the world tour, what it's, it's hard to throw your mind back a dozen years, but, but what changes have you seen in your time in the pro ranks? I'm going to turn the light on real quick. One second. It's getting a little dark here. Come on. Sorry, I'm on the Pacific time zone. So, like, sun's setting here while it's probably still, like, like mid. (laughs) Um, I got a a synthetic light here. So, I'm faking it back on the East Coast. (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah, that was was a great question. I was actually, uh, I was actually thinking about that the way we used to train was a big thing. Um, I remember, I mean, you were, you were living in Luca. Actually, we were roommates in Luca in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I remember just kind of picking a spot. Like it, what, what was that coffee shop? It was called Angela Dolce, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we meet at. 
And it was like kind of the local pros. We would meet up and we would do a ride. And every now and then people would have like a specific thing that they would do. But mainly it was like, hey, let's roll a pace line or let's race up this climb or let's sprint to town signs. And we just we just kind of go out. We work hard. We hammer. We might stop at a coffee shop and we're like, maybe someone would do an hour more. Maybe someone would do an hour less. But it was basically like we just went out. As a group, we worked hard. We had fun. Now, later on, the training got so specific that it almost seemed like everyone was just training on their own mm-hmm. because it was too hard to coordinate plans. Like, oh, I have to do this. Oh, I have to do that. And and so everyone's just kind of isolated in their own plan and not really like just going out as a group, which could be good, could be bad, but I do think that that sort of social aspect of it is is getting a little bit lost today. Um, I don't know. When I look back to 2010, I don't know. Definitely the, the race – I'm not going to say that there was no fighting or no tension in the races back in 2010, but I do think that there was more of a method to it and more of a – like we fought for times that mattered and now it almost seems like it's a junior race where you fight all day for nothing. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to laugh because I, I, I know in the heat of the moment, it's gotta be awful, but yeah, I've heard, I've heard that, that it's cutthroat all the time. There's n- there's no joking around. It's never been compared to a junior race. So that's kind of perfect, but and why do you suppose that is is it is does every moment count is every is it i always call it square peg round hole every team wants to be in the front and is told to be in the front or like are there moments of relaxation or is it just full gas all day i don't know i mean i I mean i mean i'm sure you remember like when you go to the some of those races early on in the year and you know, the first two guys who attack, like everyone else is like, ah, whatever, that's the breakaway. And it's just two guys. And then you, we kind of chill out for like three hours and then we start a chase mm-hmm. and it's like, ah, oh, it's only two guys. They'll be easy to catch. Now it's like you show up to races where people in the U S probably never even heard of. And most people in Europe probably never even heard of like, um, but it's like still this 80 K fight for the breakaway. And then once, and then the breakaway is like 10 guys. And then you don't have a whole lot of real estate left to, to chase that breakaway. If you want, if you have a sprinter and want to win the stage, so then it's like, okay, you got to start the chase straight away. So it's just always fast. There's never this stage where it's like, ah, oh, let the, let the small teams up the road. You know, they're just here to show the Jersey, like everyone's fighting for everything. And, um, yeah, people show up, like teams show up to the races and, you know, everyone has a purpose. Like they want to be in the breakaway. They also have a sprinter. They also have a GC guy. Like you, it used to be like, that's a sprinter team. That's a GC team. That's an attacking team for the breakaway. And now everyone's just trying to get everything. And uh, it's just why that is, I don't know, but it's, it's definitely a change that I, it's, it's made racing a lot faster and a lot harder and a lot more stressful. Sure. And I wonder what the, 
not end result is because the whole sport is is forever going to be be changing and and evolving. It's nice, you know, having lived it. You know, you race any particular race, and like you said, there's going to be the the hard fought stages for a breakaway, and then there's plenty of stages that that two guys go and you chill out. It's hard to describe. You know, I retired six years ago. It would be hard to describe um, how cutthroat it is for those opening two, three hours when it is full gas all the time. Now, I I love in the month of July turning on the tour, and it's great because you know they're they're showing coverage from kilometer zero, and you know you watch it passively; it's in the background. But the first two, three hours of every single stage are the most entertaining outside of the the finale. I mean, it's it's so cool to see the it's cool on this side of the of computer screen to see that unfolding chess match and who's up the road and who's chasing who and what combination's going to work. But yes, my heart also goes out to the peloton as it's just strung out, lined out. So, that's the very long-winded way of saying do you foresee any changes? Like what's going to what's going to correct it and slow it down? Or is it, is that change ever going to take place? Ooh, man, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I don't see it going back to the way it was. I, I don't see it correcting itself. I, I see it as, to be honest, I only see it getting worse from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, now as a director, that might not be the wisest thing for me to say. That's not the most encouraging thing for me to say to to the riders out there. Like, hey, get out there, and uh, you know, it's it's going to be a tough day. <laughs> You're going to do great, <laughs> and so tomorrow better be in the breakaway. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I mean, I remember back uh, when I first started. There were days where it was like look, today is going to be a tough day, but tomorrow, trust me, it's headwind and it's flat. It's going to be a two-man breakaway. Those days don't happen very often anymore. But before, they were more predictable. Like, ah, don't worry. Tomorrow is going to be easy. Just get through today. Mm-hmm. Now it's like every day is like that, and I, I don't see how it's going to correct itself. Um, I, I wonder... Maybe maybe it doesn't, and then, you know, what are the bigger ramifications? I was talking to Mitch Docker about it, and you hear this expectation that maybe maybe people are just going to have shorter careers. Like, you have to come in, guns a-blazing, you race for a couple years, and you're just going to get burnt out because it's so hard, so stressful. And so instead of 10-plus-year careers, you're going to see six-year careers as an average. I mean, I think, I think unless something does change it, the, like you're saying there's no reason for it to regress so it's going to be some bigger picture ramifications who the heck knows yeah yeah i mean i don't know like you also look at um how good guys are at such a young age like yeah. neo pros are coming in just cleaning up and maybe that's sustainable maybe they're maybe they're following a nutrition plan and a training plan but that that's that's sustainable but i i can only think that it's uh people come in so hot that they have nowhere to go and then they're always just going to be looking for the next best thing and mm-hmm. it's just going to be the short kind of cycle through um and yeah and with the increased danger and the increased stress in the peloton is going to come increased 
number of crashes and every crash like is going to have it's going to take a toll on on the body and you know those injuries mount up i mean you look at you know we were talking about the nfl just a little bit earlier like it's you know the reason tom brady's been able to have such a good career is because they've actually protected the quarterback with the rules more mm-hmm. and the reason running backs have short careers is they take collisions every single time mm-hmm. Um, every single time they touch the ball, they, they get hit hard. So every time you hit the ground, it, it's, it's hard. And the old, the more you age, like the harder it is to get up from that. And before it's like, ah, maybe you crash once a season, maybe twice a season. If you have bad luck, you could string along a few, but I remember there were seasons, like I'd go the whole season without crashing. And then lately there's just been crashes everywhere and it's, they're harder to avoid and yeah. when you hit the ground it's it's not easy to get up from harsh yeah i've visited my fair share of race hospitals um mm-hmm. so I, I i was asking about the what changes have you seen in the world to our peloton how about you as a person like people don't often think about their changes because those those things might take place over a really long period of time or perhaps they have not changed. In what ways do you think you're a different person now in 2021 than, than when you were coming into the pro Peloton and HTC 2010? What, 22 years old then? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, 2010. Um, yeah, it was like 22, 21, 22. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, like you said, like evolution happens, like you don't notice it so much in yourself. I mean, I think I was, I was definitely, I was definitely cocky. I was definitely like, I wanted to take in every bit of information that I could because I was like so inwardly focused and I wanted to make whatever, whatever I could do to like, just ensure my own success, whether, and that, that might've, that might've helped in some relationships. It might've hurt some relationships. I might've looked at some relationships and been like, ah, how's this going to help me get rid of it? Or how's this, how's this going to help me? Like, oh, I'll, you know, make sure to get close to this guy or person (laughs) or whatever. Um, now I'm during the last couple of years, especially, I think I've been more outwardly focused. Like when I was saying uh, the most effective I felt was in the, was in the team bus. I was more, I was less interested in how can I help myself and more interested in how can I help other people? Um, and you know, and that, that's, that's where I, that's where I've also come with directing and, you know, that, that's my mission there. And, um, I don't know, this sport definitely has ways of humbling you. Um, you come in and you, you think like, okay, I'm the top dog. I'm going to, I'm going to take on the world. And I remember embarrassing myself a few times in the beginning of my career. I remember going into the tour of California in 2011, talking all sorts of smack about how I'm going to like, I'm going to win everything. I'm going to drop Levi and drop Horner and do this and do that. And I got my ass kicked and I was embarrassed and like people were, 
like having to face the music after that. So it, you definitely learn to be like, okay, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You got to be humble. You got to give the, give the other riders their respect. And, you know, everyone, everyone gets paid to do this at this level. So you gotta, um, you can't just assume that you're going to do this because you did that or it. Yeah. Plus you add two kids on top of that and being married for 10 years. It's like, and balancing just life on, on two continents. It's, it's, it, this sport makes you grow up pretty quick. Sure. I'll say that. Well, yeah. I mean, open up that can of worms. I, I, again, I just had a similar conversation with, with Mitch as he's wrapping up his career. He, like you, had the spectrum of going from a single person to married to two children over the course of your career. I went from single person to single person to retired to married with kids. So, so you know, it's that unfolding has taken place after my career. How how on earth do you balance that? Um, I mean that that's huge. The multi continent lifestyle it's it's that's big. You know, like <laughs> I don't have the formula because first of all, I'm going to say it's going to be different for everyone. Sure. Second of all, I'm going to say that Jessica and I we have tried so many different things, and we've we've just had to sort of roll with it, like. We were in Luca and then we were in Nice and then we're like, okay, we should just try to live full time in Girona. Okay, we don't like living full time in Girona. Let's get a place back in the US and just kind of get a smaller place in Girona. And I don't know. It and it it was always this running joke. Like every year we're like, okay, that was a learning experience, but now we're gonna have a dial for next year. Mm-hmm. And ever after, after the end of every year, we're like, okay, but now we have it figured out for next year. And then it was like, okay, well, now we, now we have the one kid who needs to go into kindergarten. And now, oh, now we have a second kid. And like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. Shit just kept happening that where now it's like, I guess you just have to kind of roll with it and just, just improvise and uh, make things work as they come, you know, like, and be flexible. You know, you try to plan everything out and you're like, okay, we have this race schedule dialed perfectly. You guys will be in the U S for these couple of months and then you'll come visit me here. But then, Oh, I had a crash here and I missed a chunk of racing. So now I have to go to all these races when you girls were planning on coming over here. And it, it was just always this, this rolling thing where you couldn't, you try to plan it out perfectly and it's never going to be perfect. So you just have to accept that it's not going to be perfect and that it's just a, it's a difficult lifestyle to balance. But I mean, at the end of the day, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade anything. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate that I was able to do this job for 12 years. I don't want to make it sound like, Oh, it was all tough and hard and doom and gloom. Like, we, we had so much fun. Like mm-hmm. I had so much fun being a pro bike racer Yeah, and I'm, I'm extremely proud of everything I was able to accomplish and proud to be able to say that I did it for 12 years. But the one thing I won't say was that it was just easy. Sure. <laughs> it's never easy. Yeah. Yeah. How about, uh, you are stepping into a sports director role. I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're doing some of the coaching with the, the new EF coaching program. Are you, are you also moving to Colorado, comma, and, and what is the balance going to be like going back and forth to Europe? Like how involved in day-to-day, week-to-week DSing are you doing? Well, right now, just in the off season, yeah, I, like, like I said, I mentioned before about the, uh, I was able to shadow some of the directors in the Vuelta and I was able to direct the, the team at the Worlds. Um, right now, it's just, we have a conference call once a week and we're, um, we're just kind of coming up with plans for next year. Um, some of the riders, you know how you're, you're a director and you get assigned some riders where you have, you establish communication with, I just did a ride with Nielsen and then also, and then another ride with Sean Quinn. And, uh, yeah, they reminded me that, you know, you shouldn't try to make a comeback because they're a lot better than I, I am now. I suffered so much, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, right now things are, things are pretty quiet. Things are pretty easy. Um, it's going to be kind of similar to when I was a rider. We just have to plan like when there's a break, when the girls want to come over, obviously they're going to have the, I'm always going to have the off season. They're always going to have the three months off in the summer from school. And then we're just going to try to plan out weeks here and weeks there when I have a break and when, uh, when the girls have a break from school. But the one thing that I will say will be easier is that, I, I feel like my schedule will be more set. Like once I get my schedule, I'm pretty sure that that's the races I'm going to be doing. You're not going to be worried about, Oh, I'm injured or, Oh, I crashed. So, or, Oh, I'm sick. I have to miss these races. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, yeah, that's my schedule. I'll do the schedule. Sure. No, that makes total sense. Or yeah, you could barter it with another DS, but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> You're not going to fall out of the car and, Injure yourself for the <laughs> yeah. next race. Jumping back a bit, your your first team, you raced for Rabobank Continental Team, and then your first pro team was HTC Columbia, 21, 22-year-old kid, to be frank. Um, and then immediately put in as a team leader on that team, you know, HTC Columbia, like the, that was the winningest team the year prior. I can't imagine that pressure to be a team leader at the, that point. So, so similar question that I asked a few minutes ago, like trying to put your mind back where you were in 2010. What, what is it like having that kind of pressure as a 21 year old, 22 year old kid in the biggest race in the world saying you're, you're captain, you're going for it. Yeah. I mean, um, so look, I was teammates with Mark Cavendish for those years on, on HTC 2010, 2011. So, I mean, as a Neo pro, like I, I was able to, get a few results, but all of that was kind of, uh, everything I got was just kind of unexpected and and kind of this bonus. And I guess, you know, the big result being, you know, I was third at the Dauphiné, uh, my Neo pro year in 2010, which I think just kind of came out of nowhere and everyone was surprised and it was completely unexpected. And it was only like halfway through that, that race that people were like, Oh, maybe we should actually start kind of supporting this guy. It, it wasn't like I came in as a team leader. Um, and then, you know, you, you go to 2011. Cavendish was still the main guy, like in the Tour de France and in, all, in any like main sort of like races where 
we're going and we need to produce here. It was, it was Cav who was, he was the one expected to go and, and win the races. Um, there were a couple of times when I really got my opportunity, like in tour of California, which I completely made an ass out of myself because as when I <laughs> said like, yeah, I'm going to come here and I'm going to, I'm going to show everyone that, you know, I'm ushering in the new era of American cycling, move over Levi, move over Horner. And they put me in my place pretty quick. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like those HTC years, there was not really a whole lot of pressure. It was more just like, a, let's learn. Let's not only learn, you know, how to lead a race, but also learn like how to manage the media pressure that I put on myself and be humble. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't until I got on BMC where it was like, okay, we're, we're going into races and you're our leader and you are like, this is on you now. And even then, like I, I went into the tour that year and Cadell Evans was my teammate and he had won the year before. So I, 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 I had a really successful tour that year, but when you come in with the defending champion, it's not like all eyes were on me. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I almost feel like those first three years, they were probably some of my more successful years because I was able to shunt a lot of that pressure away because we had guys who were bigger names than myself on the team. Um, going forward from there, like I feel, I feel like that's when I really understood like, okay, now now it really is all in me. And sometimes I was able to live up to it. Sometimes I wasn't. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like I, I don't even know if I, I, did I completely get away from your question? I don't even know. No, you've, you've, <laughs> you've answered it perfectly. And, and, you know, you and I were, like you said, we were living together in Luca in 2011. That was my first year with liquid gas you and I had overlapped previously just the slightest bit in 2005. We were on the U S national team. I was on the U 23 team. You were a junior. And to be honest, the thing I remember most was how Chris Stockberger was the one person that I really knew. And I only really knew him because my brother who had been racing in Colorado had said his name a handful of times. And then lo and behold, here's this guy over in, in Belgium. So then fast forward six years and we're at, the world tour leveled together. And, and I remember going to the Volta Algarve and you're as high as fifth. I think you finish in the top 10 and I'm like, dang, this, this TJ is, is not only on one of the best teams in the world. And like, in my mind, top 10 is, is phenomenal for presumably in, in February first stage race of the year. So, I mean, yeah, you've done a great job reframing the, 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 from your perspective, which is in my mind, the, <laughs> the accurate one. Um, so throughout your career, you've raced for three, three distinct teams, which coincidentally all have uh, some sort of abbreviation in them. You got, you got HTC Columbia, you got BMC and you have EF education first using a single word or a single phrase. How would you describe each of those teams? Ooh, um, <clears throat> It's, it's funny because I actually look at BMC, which is where I spent the majority of my career. I spent seven years there. I almost feel like there was a couple of different eras of that team within that same team. Mm -hmm. um, I remember EF just being fun 
and lighthearted and you know people like everyone got along all the directors were really um they all supported each other they all supported the riders i feel like the riders some of them were you know maybe maybe griping about things like yeah i should be i'm underpaid or whatever but like you know it, it was it was taken over from the t-mobile era so some of the contracts were kind of needing to get lived out and like some of the some of like the the old era t-mobile versus the new era htc some of that some of that was like not um you know some of the elder or like the the more veteran riders on the team that were crossed over from the from those two regimes were a little bit at odds with the with the new way that, that things were done and and that's not to insinuate anything like sinister that, that was more just like a the rewriting of contracts and like stuff like that so was that an immediate it, transfer it was, was that did t-mobile go through 2009 and then 2010 was htc was it that close no i mean it, it became it was a little bit before that um because yeah it was columbia in 2008 and 9 yeah. I, that was the years that like king Cappy was on the team yeah that's um so i think it was 07 was the last year of t-mobile but i was kind of living out like the last couple of years of some of the existing contracts from t-mobile that got taken over by htc so so i remember some of the veteran riders were still kind of having to outlive that sort of old regime yeah yeah which interesting to me i was i i, I came in and i was like hey this is great i'm like i i just thought everyone got got kind of equal treatment like as a neo pro i was getting like wind tunnel tested and i was getting i i was getting like all this like great equipment like di2 like oh man i remember that was the first time i had di2 i went from mechanical shifting to di2 and i was like man this is the business like i'm in the future yeah exactly i'm like man i get all this great this great stuff like um but i don't know like so you, you'd have it, it's weird when asking with like someone coming from the amateurs into a pro team of course every day is going to feel like christmas you know um you'd have to ask some of the older riders what they thought because I was just kind of wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and everything was roses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, getting onto BMC, it was a bit... In the beginning, it was kind of like very Cadell-centric because he had just won the tour. And uh, and so then it, it, it gave this odd perspective because on HTC, it seemed like everyone was given equal treatment. Everyone was... Um, everyone was given the same opportunities and the same, and, and just kind of the same, yeah, just, just equal treatment. And, uh, yeah, getting onto BMC, it, it, it definitely seemed like, okay, there's Cadell's program and it, it, it was a team that had just recently come from the pro continental, hmm. uh, into the world tour and Cadell just like won the tour. Oh, that's right. So it, it, it had to grow really fast and it seemed like there was a really good group of core riders. And it was like, that was the A team that would follow Cadell around and everywhere else you almost got like second rate sort of, I, I, I gotta be careful because I have like a lot of really good friends there who I, who I really, um, 
admire and keep in touch with to the, to this day. But as BMC, like through, through the years I was there, the team just seemed to really grow. We brought in Alan Piper and he really professionalized everything and just made everything streamlined. And, um, and we were able to just kind of feel like a more competitive team throughout all aspects. And, uh, as the team grew in its later years, it just seemed like, you know, we had, we could feel like a competitive team everywhere. And, you know, we were really dialed in terms of sports science and altitude camps and this and that. And, you know, in team time trials, I think it really showed, uh, we were, we were just so dominant there. And I think it just showed like in our preparation and our, our camps and like the time and the investment that we would put into all of that. I think it just, uh, it really showed through and just really that aspect of the sport. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it, I, I feel it. Like, yeah. So the simple answer to that question when on BMC was like, it felt like I came into a, a growing program and throughout the seven years, I was able to kind of watch it grow mm-hmm. and, and really become what, um, what it was capable of becoming. I mean, we, we were never able to win a grand tour on the team, but uh, I feel like, you know, when we had Richie Port on the team, we were pretty close and, and he, he was definitely capable of it. Um, but no, it was, a, it was a really cool team to be a part of. Nice. Now EF, it, it's just like, it's just pure fun. You know, it's, it's like we had, it was like from one day to the next, I came from being like a guy who, on BMC, like Quincy Otto would be kind of the guy who would give me guidance or come to my room and like say, Hey, I think you got to do this thing. You got to do that. And then all of a sudden from one day to the next, I was looked at as the veteran mm-hmm. and everyone was kind of asking me for advice. And that, that was like this really fun transition where I was like, I was like, wow, I guess I'm not young anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, but, but we had a, you know, obviously we had a, insanely talented team you know with like danny martinez and Nikita um and hugh carthy and it, it, i mean it was just this amazingly talented team where it was like i think these guys just need to be told how good they are <laughs> and then uh no i it was no it, it was it was really fun it was it was like it was almost like i was going back to a an htc team but instead of a talented group of like really fast sprinters, it was like a talented group of really fast climbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a fascinating evolution to watch. Um, I mean, still with a sliver of having been part of it back in 2015 and see what that, that team has evolved into. It's, it's remarkable. Um, how many riders going into 2022 are older than you are on the roster? Ooh, um, not many. Actually, like Jens Kukler was the only rider who was my age and I was older than him by like a couple of months. No way. I am trying to think, is there any riders who are older than us? I don't think so. How how old's, uh, this is out of left field, although on topic, how old's? Uh, Magnus Court Nielsen is that his name? Yeah, he's young. Like he's he's like everyone Jeez. always forgets how young he is. He's uh, I I don't know off the top of my head, but 
I could look it up. Okay. Well, yeah, unimportant. I didn't know if he was like secretly 36 years old. Um, I, he's one of those writers where people like he's, he's, you've heard his name for a number of years. You just assume he's old. Plus he has a big mustache, but yeah. he's, he's still in his twenties. He's like, he's like 26. Oh, that's bananas. Friggin' talented kid these days. Yeah. Well, terrific answers. Good summaries there. I think that's going to be a fun history lesson for a lot of folks out there. Uh, okay. In an effort to wrap up in one hour, which is generally the goal, I'm going to ask you three very hard-hitting questions. All right. Shoot. What is your favorite place to ride a bike? The Dolomites. Great answer. I love the Dolomites. The Dolomites. Yeah, I uh, I used to do my altitude camps for the tour every year on top of Paso Gardena. Mm -hmm. And, oh, it's, man, it's just a stunningly spectacular place. I mean, I know you've done the Giro a couple of times. I know you've gone to that area. It is like every time I go there, it was just... It's just incredible. And I have a really good memory there from the 2017 Giro. Got a stage win, like kind of right by the place I used to stay. Um, yeah, hands down, favorite place ever to ride a bike was uh, was the Dolomites. That's perfect. Yeah, mountains there, they're, they're weird. They're just pillars. They're stunning. They're spectacular. Italy's awesome. Great answer. Um, what is the number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? Where do you want to go ride a bike? That I've never ridden? Uh, you know, I hear a lot about um, Hawaii. Huh. Like Maui, like Haleakala is a big thing. Um, and also on the big island, there's that gigantic volcano. Huh. Um, I've, I've actually planned a couple of camps there that never ended up happening. That uh, I, I've, I've heard so much about it. and. I hear it's an amazing place, but I've, I've never been around to actually doing it. So I'd, I'd like to check out Hawaii for the riding. It's worth a visit. Uh, I've done Mauna Loa. Mauna Kea is the one that earns all the, the repute because that's the one that has the longest climb, highest climb, sea level to summit. And then, yeah, Haleakala is its own animal that I've also never – I've driven Haleakala. It's lovely. Huh. Not quite. So the it's same. good. It's worth it's worth checking out. Dude, Hawaii is amazing. You should go regardless. Bring your bike or don't. Okay. Okay. Uh, maybe surf. There you go. Yeah, go surfing. Um, <laughs> number one person you would like to go for a bike ride with, living or otherwise, fictitious, non. Who do you want to go for? Ooh. Who do I want to go on a ride with? Hmm. It's going to have to be a sports uh, – Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. <laughs> Terrific answer. Um, I bet he's fast. I bet he's competitive. He'd be like, I've never ridden a bike before, but I'm going to try to win. And he'd probably gamble on it too. Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> smoking a cigar. And somehow find a way to beat me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, shoot, TJ. This has been a pleasure. I, I very much appreciate your time. Um, you've shed some light on on a lot of things, so I appreciate that. It's been a it's been a hot minute. Hopefully, we cross paths sometime in the not too distant future. Yeah, well, let me know if you're ever 
back in either Girona or California or Colorado or hell, maybe I'll go to the East Coast. I mean, Jessica went to UVM. She's been talking about trying to get me to come to Vermont for forever. And we one of these days we're actually going to pull the trigger on it. Dude, Vermont's amazing. It uh, it snowed a bit today, so I don't know how. I mean, now that you're in retirement, you can embrace the snow. You can do a little skiing. I mean, you've you've lived in all the places. You spent some time in Aspen. You know how to deal with some cold weather here and there. So, yeah, you just have to wear more clothes. It's exactly. not that big deal. Exactly. All right, man. Uh, I won't take any more of your time. It's five o'clock. It's happy hour there. It's awesome to see you and bon voyage. All right. Thanks, Ted. Take care.